Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. It is Monday, the 20th of September. The most important news you need today is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So where in the word are you today? Where in the word are you today? I am in Hebrews chapter 1. Here are the first four verses. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You could spend some time worshiping in the first four verses of Hebrews this morning. I invite you to do so. As I reflected on what the writer of Hebrews says there, uh, it is it is creedal in nature. There there are things in those first four verses that one must stop and and ask yourself: Do I do I believe that Jesus is indeed the one through whom God created the world? Do I get it that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, that he is the exact imprint of, of God, that he exegetes the Father? Do I get that? Do I, I mean, how can I even begin to comprehend that Jesus, who is the word of God, upholds the universe by the word of his power? Like, what does that even mean? Like, everything holds together. We might understand from what, what Paul says in Colossians 1, like, Jesus is the one who holds it all together. Nothing is that he didn't create. Like all, maybe you, maybe you read Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 today in conversation with Colossians 1, 15 to 20. I mean, if you want to soak in some text today that will remind you of who Christ is, in the midst of all of the news, all of the headline news of the day, what if we just saturated ourselves today with the reality of who Christ is? Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Um, when I consider what the writer of Hebrews says here about uh, Jesus having made purification for our sins, you know, therein is the atonement. That's worthy of our consideration today. What does it mean that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high? What does the Bible have to say about the right hand of the Father? What it means to sit there? What it means to be seated at the right hand of the Father. That should accelerate my thinking forward to the book of Revelation and what it says there about where Jesus is right now and what he's doing. Or maybe to the martyrdom of Stephen, who looked up from bended knee as his life was ebbing away and saw Jesus not sitting at the right hand of the Father, but doing what? 
standing there. Like, I, I don't know about you, but what Jesus is up to right now matters to me. And right now he is at the right hand of the majesty on high. I believe that. And I believe that from there he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. That is either really good news or that is the most terrifying news you could ever hear. Because when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, those who are found to be alive in him, those who are found to be in the word and the word in us, like we get to be with him forever in glory. But Jesus is also coming again to judge what are regarded as the dead, those who remain dead in their sins, dead to the reality of who he is, dead to the resurrection possibility. The writer of the book of Hebrews also describes Jesus as having become as much superior to angels or the the name of Jesus having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That should should lead your mind immediately to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. The day is coming. The day is coming when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How do I know that? Because God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. My knee bows to him today. My heart bows to him. My mind bows to him. I hope yours does as well. This, my friends, is the good news. I encourage you to get into the word of God today. It's the most important news you're going to hear. It is certainly the most important news any of us could herald. Next, Dave Brewing will be with us from Lion Share. We're going to talk about the pace of grace, how Jesus paced himself, and how we should do likewise. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Lion Share. You can find what we're talking about today at lionshare.org. Dave, welcome back. Hey, Carmen. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Um, I really liked uh, your podcast about Jesus pacing himself and asking the question how we pace ourselves. Mm. Made me think of the pace of grace and whether or not I'm moving at the pace of grace or at sort of the mm. pale male pace of the world. So talk mm. with us this morning about... Um, how we spend our time and how we are spent in time. Yeah, no, that's great. And and this is uh, one of my very favorite topics to, to, to discuss because I think so many of us are wrestling with this. I see people getting burned out. I see people just making decisions without seeking God about things. And whenever we do that, we're, we're just going to get fried and we're going to get out in left field and all kinds of things. And just, just a quick background on this. So, it was about 20, a little over 20 years ago now, um, I was in a place in my own life where my plate was very full. I was involved in, in a lot of different things, had different responsibilities, was delighting in my work for sure. But I just, you know, was married. I had kids. I had these responsibilities. And I just began to dig into the scriptures because I thought, you know, whenever I look at Jesus, I always see him never hurried and always on time. 
And I thought, I don't want to be like that. So kind of the essence of what we'll talk about today came from my own journey of needing to make sure I wasn't being hurried and running around like a chicken with my head cut off, yet I was always on time. So what can we learn um, just in terms of Jesus's own understanding of himself? Because I think part of this is I'm always, you know, in in hurry and rush because that's the the pattern of the generation or the world mm-hmm. or the time in which I live. But mm-hmm. my life is supposed to be patterned after Christ and who he is mm-hmm. and how he lived. So talk about, you know, Jesus understanding who he was, and that really mm-hmm. enabled him to be free to live as he knew he was called to live. Yeah. So so here's the thing is I observed, and I'm sure there's more, you know, I'm sure we could dig out more, but I observed five different kind of pacing points, if I want to call it that way, that I've begun to reference in my life over these last couple of decades. So the first one was this, and it dealt more with the my innards, my heart, and it's Jesus was secure in who he was so he could freely serve others. Hmm. So you know, when we when we are living our lives out of our own insecurities, in other words, you know, the the scriptural way we might say it is, do we know our identity in Christ? Do we know that, yes, and we're not just flesh, blood and bones and and we've got these gifts and, you know, do we realize how deeply loved we are? Do we realize inside at our very core that because we're deeply loved, we don't have to perform? And when you get to that point in your life where you realize, I don't have to perform, I'm loved even if my rear end is glued to a seat for the rest of my life and I can't do anything else but sit in the seat, we're deeply loved by God, period. And when we understand that, then the things we do are an overflow of our love for him and not just activities that we're doing that hoping somebody approves and especially that God approves of us. And when I begin to look at Jesus's life, like the moment is in John 13, and particularly the first few verses of that chapter, it's where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And there's language in there, Carmen, that says, Jesus knew that his hour had come, so he understood his season of life. And then it talked about how much he loved them, and he knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. So in other words, he already knew who he was, what God was doing in and through his life, And therefore, he could get on his knees, kind of, you know, get the towel and begin to wash their feet. And so when you think about this, the Son of God washing the feet of the disciples. And as we know, Peter was a bit offended, like, Lord, you don't have to wash my... And and Jesus, you know, said, hey, if if you don't let me do this, you're not really with me. And and so this is a beginning point for pacing, is actually the internal part of our life being secure in who we are so we can freely serve others. I think that's very, um, it's liberating. It's also, you know, requires us to take a long pause and consider who we are and for whom we are doing what we're doing. Yeah. And if I'm doing it to satisfy, well, actually, if I'm doing it because I know who God is and I'm secure in who I am as his image bearer and his uh, ambassador, his representative in the world today, um, then when I'm serving others, I'm not doing so for their approval. And I know this sounds strange, but I'm almost not doing it for them. Exactly. And that seems, that like seems strange to say out loud. Yeah, no, but but that's exactly right. And, and it's like the more that we 
are secure in the Lord in the just the way that you described, and we know whose we are. You know, it, it's the more that we're able to take joy in giving out to people. And but it's not it doesn't become a performing thing or it doesn't become you know, I'm doing this because I actually need affirmation in my life. It's you already got that. Like the affirmation of the Lord is always there. His love is there. His affection is there for us. So it's ministering out of a well that's full versus trying to do thing to get that well full. Mm. Okay, that's so good. All right, we're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. Dave Buring is sharing with us some insights about how Jesus paced himself and how we are called to do so as well. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation with Dave Buring from Lionshare. You can find the notes uh, for the lesson that we're covering today at Lionshare. That's one lion, lionshare.org. Uh, Jesus paced himself, do you? Um, all right, let's, uh, Dave, let's move to the second observation that you make in terms of pacing points. So as I'm digging this out in Scripture, one of the things that I kept coming back to was Jesus only did what he saw his father doing. And we see that in John five nineteen and 20. He says, the son does nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. So it raises the question in my own life as a leader, as a follower of Jesus, as a dad, a papa, a husband, how am I making my decisions? Am I initiating things or am I allowing God to initiate those things? Now, obviously, that doesn't mean we just sit sit there in prayer, you know, 24-7, seven days a week and never get up and do anything. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is, are we seeking the Lord about our decisions? So in other words... You know, if, if we're a college student, you know, are we just kind of randomly saying, well, I kind of like the colors of the logo of that school. I think I'm drawn to that. Or are we actually saying, Lord, here's the three opportunities I have. Would you begin to show me? And we're paying attention to where God is initiating. Or if we are making business decisions or we have a decision for our family, whatever the case may be, I'm finding, Carmen, oftentimes we've grown into habits of making choices and then asking God to bless it. When I look at the scriptures, I don't see that. I, I don't see us making decisions and then God blessing. I see we seek the Lord first. And then as the Lord gives guidance, he's the one that initiated Abraham, leave your father, your family, go to a land you don't know. He's the one that said, Joshua, walk around the walls. He's the one that said, Noah, build an ark. God is the initiator. And so there's a little phrase that oftentimes we use on my team and in, in the places where I uh, spend time with leaders, and that's this. What God initiates, he permeates. What I initiate, I have to sustain. Thus, the reason why we're often exhausted. And so I think it's really important that we take the time. Sometimes we have to begin to be really honest in repentance and say, Lord, I repent for the places I've walked in presumption in life. And then I blamed you when things haven't gone well. And I repent for that, and I start over, and I say, you're going to be the initiator. I'm going to be the follower and the seeker of that, and then the obeyer of what it is that you asked me to do. Jesus did that wonderfully, and because of that, again, he wasn't hurried, and he was always on time. 
Okay, that's so good. I could settle in for a conversation there um, for so long because I think that discernment is a particular challenge, um, particularly in a in a time when there's so much opportunity to sort of make yourself an influencer. Like, you know, here yeah, are the three ways yeah. to make yourself seen and important instead of yeah. recognizing that, you know, God sees me and that's sufficient. And even if I'm operating in you know, what the world would consider obscurity, which I know people listening right now are like, there's no way Carmen thinks she's operating in obscurity. But, you know, if you were to compare Carmen to, I don't know, anybody that has a million followers on any social media platform, Carmen is operating in relative obscurity, right? So is Dave. And yet Dave has a great ministry. And, and, you know, I, I feel um, very blessed, so blessed to, uh, to have the privilege of doing what I do every day. And yet I know that by the world standards, I'm doing so in relative obscurity. But I am absolutely confident and settled that what we do in the relative obscurity of the world, if we do so in obedience to God, is all that we're called to do and what we're called to do. And it's enough. So exactly. um, I, I love this point because I don't want to be one, one step ahead. I don't want to be like, you know, striding out there trying to get ahead of God. I certainly don't want to fall behind him. Um, I want to be walking step by step with the spirit of the living God and doing so in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and yoked to Christ. And right. I mean, I, that's what I want to be doing. That's who I am. And and so that is enough. Like by every definition yeah. of enough, that's enough. But I yeah, think that in the world, there's always this like drive for more. And no, so what we're driven right. by, what we're motivated by actually takes us to the next pacing point. Yeah, and and let me just let me just confirm too what you're saying and affirm I should say what you're saying. See, what you just described is because we don't have that first one in place of being secure in who we are. And as my wife, one time she was seeking the Lord about something, Carmen, and she was kind of not out of sorts relationally with people, but people were just in a different place, and and she was wrestling with you know being secure in who she was. And the Lord says, you need to learn to be secure also in who you're not. Mm. And that's a really important thing. So, so we often wrestle with the things you just described because we're not secure in who we are and who we're not. So really important points. And I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. The third, the third one for me is a huge one. And that is this, Jesus was not driven by needs, but rather was motivated by obedience. And this is Mm. the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11, and where Jesus shows up. And as, as if people have been in the word, you know, a little bit on this, they, they're aware that once he heard that his friend, remember Mary, Martha, Lazarus were dear friends. It was one is potentially his very last stop he made on the way to Jerusalem to the cross was he hung out in Bethany with his friends. And so this is a dear friend. He hears that he's ill. Well, you know what happens when we hear people are ill if they're at the hospital or something. We're getting flowers or the Sports Illustrated magazine or their favorite treat. And we're off to the Jesus stays two days longer. And we're going, what the heck? And then we know he shows up. Lazarus has been dead officially as long as he could then officially be called dead. And Jesus raises him from the dead. But one of the things that that we can get caught in around us. Like I actually heard someone say one time from a pulpit, if you see a need, it means you're called to it. And I just threw a big mm. penalty flag right there because I see needs all the time and I don't have the capacity to be called to it all. I think most of us would say that. But Jesus saw needs. He saw the individual needs. He saw Lazarus' situation. 
And yet he didn't run to the need. Instead, he was obedient, which again, Carmen, all three of these things, secure in who you are, only doing what the Father's doing, walking in obedience, they mean we have to be dialed in to Jesus and our relationship with him. And so when God said, God, his father said, it's time to go, then he went. And this one is a life-changing principle if we're willing to let the Holy Spirit modify our lives around it. Jesus was not driven by needs. Did he feel them? Yes. Was he massively compassionate about them? Absolutely. But he was motivated by obedience. We've got to get there in our walk with Jesus. All right, Dave and I um, have to leave it right there. The next two points, the final two points on this pacing uh, conversation, you know, is just the recognition and acknowledgement that Jesus rested. The text there is Mark chapter 6, verse 31. And the only way to fulfill the call of God is to multiply one's life in the life of others. We certainly learn that from Jesus in Matthew 28. We're thinking there of the Great Commission. So what does it look like to move at the pace of grace today? One of the ways I have thought about this is to test what's in the wake of what I'm doing. Are goodness and mercy following me all the days of my life? Is that what's in the wake? Or, you know, or are there people who I have run over in my pursuit of hurry and rush? So uh, those are questions you might ask yourself today as well. Dave Buring, as always, thank you so much. Invite people to... Find these resources at lionshare.org. We'll be right back. We spent time during Fall Share um, asking the question of belief. What do you believe? What do I believe? Why do I believe it? And then based on what I believe, how do I live? And yes, how do I give? So I want you to consider today that other people are living by their beliefs in the same way that you and I are living by our beliefs. People are making decisions and they are doing things today based on what they believe, based on their worldview. They're putting their worldview into practice. And so as we're reading the headlines of the day, as we're reading what people are saying about themselves and why they do what they do, let us consider what beliefs are behind those actions. So I read what I will describe as a strange Confession and Manifesto, published in the Washington Post. It is on the subject of abortion in the state of Texas, and it is written by an abortionist um, who has been defying Texas's new law, um, limiting abortion services in Texas. And this is a an abortion provider talking about, you know, why he is proudly defying the new law. And I want to say this, this abortionist comes by his worldview honestly. Like, this is his honest system of belief. He was literally taught to think this way. And in fact, he says in this confession slash manifesto, um, you know, that in medical school in Texas, this is a quote, we've been taught, we'd been taught that abortion was an integral part of a woman's health care. And when the Supreme Court issued its ruling in Roe v. Wade in 1973, recognizing abortion as a constitutional right, it enabled me to do the job I was trained to do. People come by their system of beliefs honestly in the culture in which we live. And those beliefs have consequences, some of them quite deadly. 
We are going to talk next with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College about abortion in America and a number of other headlines of the day. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm a big fan of listening, a huge fan. I find myself constantly coaching parents to slow down, stop using so many words, and start using their ears. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. When you deliberately dial back your words and ramp up your listening, this communicates value to your team. It says to them that you care about what they truly think and feel. But there's another aspect to listening that most parents overlook. When you ask a question and wait for the answer, listen with your ears and your eyes. Make eye contact and really become a student of your teen's facial expressions and body language. Don't get discouraged if your teen doesn't want to talk. Just keep listening with your ears and your eyes. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at parentingtodaysteens.org. Dr. Adam Carrington joins us again this morning from Hillsdale College. Adam, welcome back. Back. Hope everyone had a good Labor Day. Uh, uh, it's been a while, so I'm glad to be talking with you again. Oh, we're so glad you're here. We had a, a really wonderful um, fall share, and uh, folks have really stepped up and supported the ministry financially, so we're just so grateful. Um, Adam, I want to talk with you about a piece that you have posted at spectator.org. It's in response to a piece that we both read uh, in the New York Times by Linda Greenhouse. So maybe tell people um, enough about the original piece by Linda Greenhouse that they will they will be able to understand your reply. Sure. Linda Greenhouse, who writes regularly for the New York Times, especially on the courts, wrote an article based on the abortion um, litigation in Texas and the upcoming one for the out of Mississippi where Roe v. Wade could be at stake. And basically, beyond arguing against it and arguing for an abortion rights regime, she decried and attacked those who make arguments for the unborn. And she seemed to say any arguments by anybody, but especially those who make pro-life arguments in favor of uh, that are God based, that say that we are created in the image of God or that our rights come from God and they include the right to life and said basically they have no place in our public discourse. They have no legitimacy as far as um, making an argument in the public sphere. So she went well beyond attacking the pro-life movement and basically any arguments that think that God has something to say to the public sphere that we should listen to, she said, is out of the picture. So, um, you know, I am not nearly the student of these things that you are, but my immediate response and reaction would be that, um, hey, aren't those inalienable rights uh, a derivative? I mean, don't they, you know, my right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, aren't those rights that are derivative from a from a creator God? So I'll just pause there and then I will let you um, describe your response uh, to Linda Greenhouse. 
And really, it was it was twofold. One, you're touching on the Declaration of Independence, especially that's the most famous articulation of that. And and the Declaration's very clear to say not we're endowed by God with inalienable rights, we're endowed by our Creator. And they mean God, but they mean that in the act of creation, the very definition of humanity means to possess these rights and to treat people otherwise is to treat them as not human. So much of human dignity is bound up in this historically. You can see it in the abolitionist movement, as in addition to the founding. You can see it in the, um, the, the women's suffrage movement. You can see it in the civil rights movement. And I argue that uh, historically, she's undermining these movements, many of which I am sure she thinks is good, sure she thinks reached the right result, but that found these arguments about what God demands of us in relation to each other essential. And I think that I also make the point that logically she's undermining her argument because historically these people had a point to say if all people are equal, basically, then what right do we have to tell each other what to do? Uh, how do we understand what's right and just in some authoritative way? Uh, how do we do so without God? Uh, how do we do so without a legislator and governor that is in, inherently in charge, inherently and rightfully in charge above and beyond us, and that the, the, the source and stability of our uh, respect for each other, our protection of each other in our life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, in the rights that have done so much to enhance the way we treat other human beings and the way other human beings uh, are, have their dignity is uh, recognized is so intrinsically bound up in this that she, she not only is against the history, but I think she's against the logic that has brought about not only not only some movements that she's against, but this but but movements that she supports, and I think in the end, um, by opposing the pro-life movement the way she did this way, she's also wrong on these particular facts that the pro-life movement is the rightful heir of the women's suffrage movement, of abolition, of the American founding, and that she's even wrong on that particular detail. So so this article got a lot of play, I mean, greenhouses, and, and I really felt that a response to it was necessary. All right, you guys can read um, Adam's response at spectator.org. Uh, and if you just search for Linda Greenhouse, you're going to um, come up with that. Actually, if you just Google Linda Greenhouse and Adam Carrington, you'll come up with the article as well. Let's, um, let's touch on another pro-life uh, topic and issue um, here. Well, I don't know if it's pro-life so much as it is. It's certainly court-related. Talk with us about what Justice Barrett said earlier, uh, actually last week now, that, that got a lot of attention. Yeah, she spoke at the McConnell Center in Louisville, Kentucky, and she was trying to argue that as a judge, they should not see themselves as partisan, as part of a po political coalition. They should see themselves as as far as much as possible disinterested interpreters and appliers of the law, and that they sh that she hoped she they could fight the the idea and the 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 the, the story out there that they're partisan hacks. That's the phrase I think she actually used and has got, she has gotten a lot of blowback on this. And I think it's interesting for our discourse because on one hand, the people that are saying, how dare you say something like that 
tend to be the people who partisanly are upset that she was nominated and put in place to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the eve of an election. They're mad that the, the that these seats were put in place, her, Gorsuch, and, and Kavanaugh by President Trump, and for what that might pretend. Uh, but if you get beyond that, I think a thing that keeps coming up is uh, Federalist 78, written by Alexander Hamilton, said that the judges, unlike legislators and unlike voters, are supposed to not exercise will, meaning their own opinions, but judgment, meaning taking the will of another, the will of the voters as expressed through the Constitution and the laws, and apply it to cases so that the, their will is carried out, not the judges. And one question we have to ask ourselves is in this hyper-partisan environment, do we still believe that's possible and true? And if we don't, then we're in serious trouble because our entire structure of government with an independent judicial power is based on the idea that what Barrett said, while we'll never get it perfect because of human nature, is is approachable, is doable enough to have a separate judicial branch and not make it another legislative branch. And so I think beyond just the partisan wrangling that question of whether our structure is possible, given what we think about uh, what judges do, is 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 coming to the forefront as well. That is a very interesting um, thing to to think about and consider. And I think that going back and reading reading some of the Federalist Papers, Federalist seventy eight here is the one that Dr. Carrington is referring to. Um, I'm not sure a lot of us have gone back and read many of the the founding documents of our nation. You know, we're familiar with the Declaration of Independence and maybe the beginning of the Constitution, but it's probably been a while since anybody has read um, either of those documents uh, fully and certainly not the Federalist paper. So let's just, you know, if you're going to do something today with a little extra reading, once you read Federalist 78 and uh, see what you can suss out about how the judiciary is supposed to be rightly understood and exercising not a will, Certainly not the will of individual people or individual judges, but merely judgment. What does that look like? What does it look like for me to discern the will of God and then rightly apply it? That might be a way to uh, have that conversation in your own life. All right, we've got to take a very brief break. Dr. Carrington and I are going to come back touching on the General Milley story. That's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. You got me singing like All right, continuing our conversation with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Um, Adam, let's uh, let's pivot and talk a little bit about the General Milley story for for people who have you know not been paying attention of late. What is going on here? Well, the the latest Bob Woodward uh, co-written book, and Bob Woodward's obviously famous for exposing the Watergate story back in the in the seventies with Richard Nixon, and therefore has sort of made a career out of writing about presidents and trying to get the inside scoop on them. So his latest book that is about to come out on on President Trump um, makes the claim that uh, General Milley of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, in, in the days after the January 6th incident at the Capitol, uh, called China or contacted China uh, to tell them that there was no plan for a uh, imminent or or secret attack against them because I think he he it seems that he was worried that uh, President Trump may be acting in an unstable manner and didn't want to have world relations go into chaos. 
but the the problem with that story if it is if it is true and and i think people have been right to uh, pause the brakes there's been some misreported things in woodward stories before especially the more salacious the more potentially so but if true uh, the problem is regardless of what general milley thought of the president's state what he thought of what could possibly happen destabilizing the world. Uh, the question is whether he subverted the chain of command and therefore subverted a very important principle in our Constitution, which is that we have civilian leadership of the military. And I think uh, we, we still there's still enough fog that we don't know all the details, but um, we, it's something we have to investigate closely, because if he did break that chain of command, if he did uh, act in such a way, and there's debate about whether uh, the, the Trump administration knew about it, there's disputes about that. But if he did do this um, in the way it was described in the Woodward book, it would be a serious breach of civilian knowledge and control of the military, and one that I think would justify uh, his being removed. But again, I, I think in our rush to judgment, uh, as someone like uh, Senator Tom Cotton just recently said, this story needs to be investigated more before we act, but it also is serious enough that we need to investigate it and do something decisive if it turns out to be true. Okay, since, since this is... Uh somewhat related to January 6th, and um, and this question arose over the weekend for lots of folks. Um, I'm going to ask you, even though I didn't prep this conversation uh, in advance. So there are 37 individuals who are being held without bond in jail um, for their behavior uh, accusations related to January 6th. So... Um, how unusual is that for someone to be held without bail in jail for this long a period of time? And is there a rights conversation that we should be having? I think that one, the, the idea of being held without bond or bail is not unusual as far as a practice. It depends upon the crime that's being accused and whether the person is a flight risk. So being held in jail without bond for a parking ticket would be extraordinary and and, and, and ridiculous. That I, I but I think in this situation I think that, that you would have to look at the particular accusations. And if the accusations are that uh, these people, the, the particular person engaged in violent actions, if they were some of the people that were uh, uh, physically attacking uh, Capitol Hill police officers uh, and, and could be a danger of trying to escape the country, then it's reasonable to do that. Uh, I have to admit I've not looked at all 37 uh, indictments. And so I'm not leaving that there couldn't be certain people where this is an overreaction, where they don't present a flight risk and weren't engaging directly in any violent activity, or at least provably so. Um, but that's the standard that one needs to be looking at. Um, and I, I think that uh, uh, that's the question you have to ask is, is what are they being charged with? And many of them are being charged, by the way, with violent felonies um and 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 that's and, and whether that they, they they might escape so i think that's the question that needs to be asked as far as are they getting due process and by the way um they should get every 
piece of due process that our system sets up. Our system is set up to help even those that are probably guilty to get as fair a shake as they can, to prove their innocence if it's provable, or to prove mitigating circumstances to lessen their sentence if need be. And I think that uh, uh, that needs to be looked into. I apologize that I haven't looked into all their uh, particular no, no. claims, I think that but the, that would be it. Yeah, that would be the standard. Yeah. yeah, the due process conversation, I think, is an important one. And part of what I was trying to do was bring the hysteria out of the conversation and just remind ourselves that there are legitimate reasons why some people are held without bond. Um, but the due process conversation is a really important one to have as well, which brings us to um, consideration of the Constitution. On Constitution Day, you posted a really great piece on nationalreview.com um, talking about reverence to the Constitution requiring us to reject identity politics and partisan tribalism. That uh, piece is entitled Choose the Rule of Law Over the Rule of Men. Um, take take 30 seconds to to pitch the article so people will go and read it. Sure. Uh, in, in our hyper-partisan times, we've had a lot of pe- where I think people will place ru- the rule of law, the idea that laws rule and that we rule through them, uh, and made them secondary to the idea of I need to be loyal to my tribe, whether that's defined by skin color Uh, whether it's defined by regional affiliation, whether that's defined by partisan affiliation. And my argument is the Constitution is set up to say the rule of men is turns, whether we mean it to or not, into tyranny. It turns into rule to help your friends and hurt your enemies. And that one great advance of the Constitution to celebrate on Constitution Day is to say we're going to rule based on laws that respect the liberty and equality of each other, even when we disagree, even when we don't look or think alike, and that that's the way to, to reverence the Constitution. And working through that Constitution and the way it sets up is the way to uh, not only honor it, but to make our politics better than it is right now. And that, that we, we still have that gift of the Constitution. We need to take advantage of that gift more than we have been lately. All right. I just tweeted it out. If you follow me on Twitter, you can very easily find what Dr. Adam Carrington has posted at nationalreview.com. You can also look for it. Choose the rule of law over the rule of men. Adam, as always, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. We'll be right back. All right. I'm going to make a thunderstorm observation, depending where you are today. Um, so it's, it's thundering where I live and my dog has decided that her safe space is right next to me. So if you hear sassy, that's what's going on, uh, in the studio this morning. We got another hour of mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play music app. That way, you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.